People want joy, by which I mean kind of sustainable happiness and well-being. We recognize that life has ups and downs, but it's that resilience and kind of general level of flourishing that I think all people want. So I think it is informed by that lived experience and recognizing that people don't want to be seen as victims. They don't want to just be kind of lifted out of that, but really want to have that opportunity to flourish. I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. Over the next few weeks, we'll be speaking with local leaders about what they're doing to make Boston a stronger, healthier, and more livable city. Today, I'm joined by Justin Pascarello, Executive Director of the East Boston Social Centers, to talk about the critical ways in which his organization creates joy for East Boston families and the ways in which his experiences help inform a more comprehensive approach to social services. Hello, Justin. It's so great to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Jill. Thanks so much for the opportunity. I'm really excited to be here. So I would like to start with, I watched your TED Talk a little while ago, and the opening is heart-wrenching and powerful and grabs the audience. I think, I'm sure you had that experience standing up on stage. Can you talk a little bit about from where you came and, you know, kind of the beginning of Justin? Yeah, um, I was adopted. So my birth father died when I was a few months old. And my birth mother had a mental illness that wasn't correctly diagnosed for a long time. It's schizoaffective disorder. So they would get a piece of it and not get all of it. And she, at times, did a really outstanding job. She was a single mother. He had left a business behind. And she says she wasn't a businesswoman. So she was trying to run that business, trying to raise a child. And at times did a great job and at other times couldn't really take care of any of it. And so I was fortunate. I had support from family members, friends, was with them. But my aunt thought it would be best for me to be in foster care. And I went into foster care when I was four, was in a few placements. I have a sister in England. My birth father is older. And so she was an adult and she took me in and I lived with her and her family for a year and then came back. And my birth mother was still doing her best. But she took too much of her medication one night and fortunately realized that she needed to do something about that. And so she called an ambulance. And that was the last night that I lived in the same house with her. And the way you tell that story when you were up on stage is that there was something that had your mother make the decision to wake you up, to call the police, to get help effectively. You said there must have been some spark of joy. She does have an amazing amount of resilience. She, she's really inspired me over the years. Every time that it seems like just life has thrown everything it can throw at a person at her and you don't know how someone would keep going, she keeps going. And that was one of those moments where somehow she, she realized she had this child and, and wanted to keep going. I'm so curious about your experience because, you know, at the foundation, we work with students in public schools in in lots of difficult situations. We work with students who are homeless. We work with students who are in the foster care system, but we do it without really an experience set that helps us sit right next to them emotionally and energetically. And you've had all of those experiences. And so it's so interesting to talk to someone 
like you, who has all of these different lived experiences that you're bringing to the work that you do today. And we'll get into that in a second, but I want to finish the story because so, so you see, you were in foster care, your family members took care of you, you were eventually adopted. Yes, into a huge Italian extended family and really fortunate that they valued family a lot. So when people talk about open adoption, they're often talking about maintaining one connection or you know maybe it's sending a photo one time a year. My adoption included four visits a year with my birth mother. I had a social worker who stayed with me all the way till my high school graduation who actually brought my birth mother to that graduation. And I gave a speech and they were able to watch me and I asked for parents to stand and be recognized and my social worker encouraged her to stand and be recognized with the other parents that day. My family in England have always been an important part of my life. My sister's kids are basically like my siblings as well. And yeah, so I was really fortunate to have a lot of connections and also to be in a place where I was able to do well in school and have support in that. And so when you talk about the lived experience, Jill, I think something that has been so valuable for me is that I was able to be seen for my strengths. And when I think about bringing lived experience to the work, that's such an important part for me is that it's about focusing on strengths. And part of what brings me to joy is that's what I wanted. And I think that's what all people want. And often our systems are geared toward kind of just stopping deficits. But I think none of us just want to not have deficits. We want more than that. We want to be seen. We want to be able to self-actualize. Exactly. Yeah. And so just before we move on to a discussion about joy, so you went from Arlington to Harvard and you did that. There's so many kids in this country who are suffering and who are experiencing homelessness and foster care and difficulties within their family. And some of them, many of them don't make it through school and go to Harvard. You experienced all of those things and did. And can you talk a little bit about, it sounds like part of it was this community of people around you who are supporting you through all of this. What is different that you know allows some kids in those circumstances to grow up and thrive and so many to not? Yeah. Well, I would say an animating belief I have is that that a lot more youth can thrive than is currently happening and that we need to do more to make that happen. For me specifically, there were definitely a lot of advantages I had. I used to do work with the Department of Children and Families and the former commissioner, Harry Spence, talked about that after two moves, the number of moves could increase exponentially for kids. And I think part of that is difficulty forming attachment when attachments have been disrupted so much. What I was really fortunate to have was consistent relationships, even through all the changes I was experiencing. I had those connections to my birth family. I had people telling me they loved me, including my birth mother. Part of what made that easier was that my birth family had financial resources. So I definitely recognize that. I recognize that I've lived in communities that had good schools and I did well in school and was supported in that. So it was, I was able to have a strength that I had support around, but yeah, definitely the relationships. And I do recognize, honestly, that being a white male, that that there are ways in which the systems make it easier than they do for people of color a lot of the time. What was the work that you did in DCF about? Yeah, I uh, founded and ran a mentoring program that's now Silverlining Mentoring. I'm proud to continue to be on the board there. And we have an executive director, CEO, who does outstanding work there. 
So it was through that work uh, that I became involved in the strategic plan for DCF. And I also did an internship in DCF in legislative affairs. So I've had a chance to work on kind of a variety of things to see the ways in which the system is a pendulum that kind of goes back and forth between do we try to keep people in families of origin and support those families of origin? Do we remove kids earlier? And through my experience working with DCF, I think I've just learned and, and seen reinforced the value of keeping families intact and providing the supports they need to make that happen. And, and actually, we're really fortunate here at the social centers. Now we have a demonstration grant from the Children's Bureau, where we're working on primary prevention strategies and a public health approach to keep kids with their families. So it's exciting to be able to continue to have that work. So you're the executive director now at the East Boston Social Center. And talk about what a social center is, why it's important, how it interoperates with the community, with the state, with schools, and and talk a little bit about your vision for community centers. Yeah. East Boston Social Centers dates back to 1918 or perhaps even earlier. We were founded as part of the Settlement House movement. So this was a movement where people moved into urban communities and helped new immigrants to become integrated through provision of public health, social services, early education, and were really pioneers in those fields. Also, it was really interesting because it was these outsiders coming in. So over time, the social centers became a more grassroots kind of community-led organization. We cultivate community, belonging, and joy, and we do that by supporting people from birth through old age. So everything from early education to our active adult programs here. And yeah, so we play a really important role. We are home in a lot of ways to a lot of people in our community and a place of connection. And we support people in East Boston, also Chelsea Revere and Winthrop. Some of the things that I'm excited to be working on, I'll I'll just mention three of them. One of them is to demonstrate that we can significantly measurably increase joy in community. I think joy can sound kind of like a fluffy concept in a way, but I, I want to be really rigorous about that. And and increasing joy or sustained happiness is linked to a lot of really positive and really important outcomes that I think matter a lot for our society, particularly in this time. So that's one. A second one that we're working on is to have all children in East Boston enter kindergarten ready to learn, joyful and thriving. And that work is called Every Child Shines. And then a third major project that we're working on is to demonstrate what would it look like if all kids and families had access to high quality, affordable, early education and care taught by equitably paid teachers. We're part of the Common Start Coalition working on that vision at the Commonwealth level. And we are in the beginning stages of trying to do work to pilot what does that vision look like and evaluate the impact so that we can hopefully help to make that movement move forward. So given that two of the three goals that you just outlined have to do with young kids, I'm assuming that this is where you think we can implement change agents that completely transform kids' trajectories? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Definitely one of the things that brought me to the social centers was our work in early childhood that, you know, so much of the evidence that I've seen is that the greatest return on social investment we can have is with young kids. And it's an area where the United States does far too little in comparison with peer nations. So I feel like there's a lot of opportunity to do this on the ground work and then see the impact beyond. But definitely, I think there's a lot of impact also in that we work with people across the full lifespan that this can be home for them throughout. And so the work with Joy definitely goes across all ages and 
our new infant toddler center actually is in a building where we have older adults living upstairs. So we're really excited about thinking about ways to strengthen intergenerational connections too. Is there a reason you think that we haven't paid attention to young individuals in this country as much as other countries do? Yeah. Oh, such a great question because we've come close as a country a lot of times. Back, Nixon was one pen stroke away from bringing universal early education and care to this country. In World War II, we had a high quality early education and care system in this country. So I don't think it's kind of un-American or something that we couldn't do to support our youngest children more. I do think from a lot of you know what I've been reading and learning about more recently, I do think honestly that racial inequality, that racism has been a factor in this, that unfortunately some people have been driven by a desire not to have all people benefit to create policies that just, that hurt a lot of people. But I think it's something that we can overcome. So talk about joy and why that's the other third leg of the stool. You have a director of joy, right, as part of your management team. So what does she do? Why joy? And you talked about being able to measure it. And so how will you do that? Yeah. When I went to graduate school, I was thinking a lot about just what is the difference that I want to make in the world and thinking about what do people want most in life? And I think people want joy, by which I mean kind of sustainable happiness and well-being. It's not, you know, walking around with a smile at all times. We recognize that life has ups and downs, but it's that resilience and kind of general level of flourishing that I think all people want. So I think it it is informed by that lived experience and recognizing that people don't want to be seen as victims. They don't want to just be kind of lifted out of that, but really want to have that opportunity to flourish. So we hired a director of Community Joy just a few months ago. We're super excited about this. And part of my theory of change about how to make this happen is that There's two pieces I'll talk about here. So one is that joy lives in community. So the Framingham Heart Study, for example, looking at that data, we found that the happiness of the friend of the friend of your friend, if that person lives pretty close to you, impacts your happiness. And I think our society, we often focus a lot on how to increase individual happiness, but actually we can much more effectively do this if we're trying to increase joy at a community level. And the way that we think we need to make that happen here is to start first by focusing on our staff, that we need staff to have high level of well-being to be able to effectively deliver programs that bring joy to community. So our director of community joy is starting with our staff and then infusing it through our programs. And then finally, the goal is to bring this into kind of a collective impact informed approach across our community and hopefully to demonstrate something that could be replicated far beyond here, too. When you say she's starting with staff, what is she doing with staff? And she's working with staff to increase joy? Yes, working with staff to make this a best place to work and to increase joy. So an important part of that is listening to staff. Uh, We're starting with just data from staff surveys that we've collected and from individual conversations with staff to see what they're most looking to have. Definitely we know, and I've heard that this is true in many organizations, that one area staff want to work on is communication, but we want to understand more specifically where they want to focus. So she's helping us with that. When I think about joy, there are five things that from the research I've seen matter most. The first is long and strong relationships. The second is opportunity to pursue your purpose. The third is kind of mindfulness, spiritual well-being. 
fourth is physical fitness and well-being. The fifth one that I added is fun. So the first four are super grounded in research. The fifth one was just I felt like it was strange to talk about joy and not have fun in there. <laughs> Right. just has to be. All right. So those are the kind of anchoring pillars that she's using with this work with staff as well. Thinking about how do we support staff? And, you know, we're fortunate to be in a place where they can pursue purpose, but just reinforcing and recognizing the ways in which people are making a huge difference in our community is important. Helping to support strong relationships in the workplace, giving people opportunities to connect with mindfulness and fitness and really making it just easier to pursue those things and infusing our days with fun. And so in doing that, based on your theory, you're creating a number of touch points to the community that can, you know, so if you go back to the Framingham Heart Study, that can be that third degree, but very proximate to where people are. So if they're experiencing more joy, then by default, potentially the whole community. That will kind of radiate out. Exactly. Yes. That that's an awesome thing that happiness actually is contagious. Yeah. Yeah. Something else I wanted to mention here is just on the work that you've been doing related to mental health recently is, so there's the why joy that I talked about in terms of kind of self-actualization, but also why now in this moment, we have this national crisis in mental health. And certainly to the conversations that you've had, we need more mental health supports for people. I think another piece of the coin that we really need to work on that has also come up is how do we help people, how do we help people not get into crisis? And so these These aspects that can strengthen people's resilience are really critical for that. And we're really interested. We have a Joyful Easter Youth Council that we want to expand significantly. We might need to change the names. We want to think about the most effective way to reach teens with it. Uh, But but we're really interested in working with peers, having peers have that opportunity to lead in supporting mental health during this time of crisis in mental health. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, You know, one of the other guests we had recently was Roz Picard from MIT, and she talks a lot about resilience and building resilience, which is what you're talking about doing. But her work shows that resiliency is a continuum. And if you are strong and resilient, trauma can come at you and you can manage it and move through it without it breaking yes. you. And if and if you are lower in the continuum of resiliency, then it's much more difficult to not be deeply impacted by, by the same trauma. And so I think it's very smart because I do wonder if that is, you know, the way that we should be addressing this mental health crisis is to sort of take a big step back and, and just look at it comprehensively as there are things that are happening that are impairing our brains in ways that are making us sick. Yes. From a mental and therefore physical perspective as well, because a lot of it is you know, trickles down. And so this infusion of joy and this strategy in, in East Boston is, is an interesting thing to watch, I think, to see if it, if it moves the needle. I want to understand how you measure it, though. How do you, how do you think about, okay, where are we now? And where do we want to be? And how do we know that we're getting there? Yeah. And our director of community joy brings this research education doctorate and is really excited to be diving into the research even more. When I think about this, I I think I want to keep data collection as simple as possible so that we can not give people too much survey burden. And there are some really great instruments that are pretty short and straightforward. So just to look at joy or happiness overall. So as I said, I, when I say joy, I mean kind of sustained happiness and well-being over time. Sometimes instruments will be called happiness, but I really think they fit my definition of joy. There's the Cantrell ladder. So when people hear that Denmark or Finland are the happiest place in the world, 
that's based on this rating on a scale of one to 10 of kind of how you feel about your life direction. And my goal is for Eastie to beat Denmark and Finland down the road. Uh, and then there's positive negative affect scale. So the World Happiness Report uses these two together. The positive negative affect scale, we'll see places like Paraguay doing really well. And that's about what emotional experiences did I have yesterday, both positive and negative. And then I want to break it down into those domains that I mentioned. So for relationships, I think there may be a really good question. There's one where Iceland has been identified as the place where the fewest people don't have someone they can rely on, which I think is a really good measure of having those strong relationships that you need. I haven't been able to find the exact question yet, but I'm <laughs> working on it. Uh, but basically a question indicating that I want to help to really reduce social isolation in East Boston and, and really want to partner with other academic partners. So there's the Human Flourishing Project at Harvard and some other projects We're really, it's great to be in greater Boston, as you know, because we have this wealth of academic resources that we can connect with to help us identify the best questions to get at this. And so one of the things that we're looking to do is a community baseline survey. We did do the Cantrell ladder with our staff as part of our staff survey, but we want to do this baseline across the community, across our programs, and then to repeat it over time to see the impact that we're having. Well, I, I'm curious, actually, it is you're a part of Boston. East Boston is a part of Boston. Does the mayor know what you're up to over in East Boston and that you're working on moving the needle of joy and happiness in, in the East Boston community? That is a great question. As far as I know, Mayor Wu does not know. There are uh, people in the administration who know, but I would love to talk with the mayor more about this. Yeah, it seems like, you know, we should be trying it in multiple places across, across multiple communities. So talk to me now about the day-to-day -day application of the work that you're doing and how, because you talked about one of the five things is relationships. Do we have fewer relationships than we did in the past? We're all kind of so stuck in our computers and in our phones. And, you know, you hear stories about the elderly fe feeling less connected than than they were in the past. There's, you know, families tend to be all over the place. And so what do you find in the East Boston community? Are, do we have enough touch points in the day that we trust and who are really considered friends? Yeah, it's a, it's a good complex question. Nationally, there is some data saying that people 25 or 1985 or so reported having three close relationships and that that has drifted down toward two. So that's a pretty significant decrease in the national data. In East Boston specifically, it's a mixed story. Our teens report that they are more likely to have someone they can count on who's an adult than is true in surrounding communities. On the other hand, social isolation is higher among our seniors than is true statewide. And that really surprised me because honestly, my stereotype of East Boston is a lot of Italian Americans, a lot of Latino immigrants who have strong, who have strong family and community bonds. So that's surprising and definitely something we want to work on. And then I think the community by design has both, both assets and challenges as a dense urban community. So there's a TED talk that talks about how Sardinia has pockets of Sardinia have some of the longest life expectancy and how much relationships matter for that. And they talk about two different kinds. There's the kind of like consistent, close relationships, and then there's just seeing people every day. And so by design, people can interact a lot on the street in East Boston. I think that's a real strength of being in a dense urban community. And then at the same time, we're a community where people face a lot of hardships that I think that can be stressing and can be potentially isolating for people. 
And so what is the work that you do to make those connections, help people feel more connected to one another? The social centers for 100 years has been this kind of family, this community anchor. We have people who have literally been part of this organization for generations. And so there, there's this foundation of really strong relationships within the organization that we want to build on. And then programmatically, we're focused on strengthening relationships as well, so that every child shines work that I mentioned. One of the things that we do is have an expanded welcome baby program across the first year of life. And we're not only connecting families to resources, but also we have parent partners, other parents from the community delivering this program and helping connect people into relationships in community. And other programs also, our our older adult program connects people. But I think the other part that I would say here is I definitely don't know all the answers yet. And I think um, that's part of what makes this exciting for me. And it's going to be a fun challenge. And we're really looking for as many collaborators as we can find. We want to bring in that academic expertise, that real world expertise, and ask the question. And, and through the baseline survey, we want to identify what are the risk factors for isolation in this community? And then what are the new strategies that we need to help people build relationships across that isolation? And East Boston is a place in transformation. There's a lot of new development happening there. There's lots of, I think, new individuals being attracted. They, they weren't, didn't traditionally grow up and live in East Boston. They're coming from somewhere else. Do those changes impact your work or how you think about community in Boston or in East Boston? Yeah, it's, you know, it's a question that we think about a lot and we thought about a lot in our strategic planning and we really do see ourselves as an organization to support the entire community. And we recognize that that some of the, the people you mentioned coming to these new places may have more financial resources, but this problem of social isolation is a problem that impacts everyone. The search for purpose impacts everyone. And so we're really excited to strengthen some partnerships there and invite some of the new people in our community to become part of this and to find that connection through the social centers. And how do most people find you? Those who have not been kind of multi-generationally involved in the in the community center. Yeah, we and we definitely need to do more there. I will say even before I became executive director, I'd come by our central building many times and didn't actually know what happened here. So one of the things that we need to do is work on our marketing and communication across the full community. But definitely word of mouth is the leading way that people find us. And we're um, talking about that lived experience, the parent partners who I mentioned. We have this diverse group of parent partners who come from... I think at least 11 different countries speak at least eight different languages, and they're really well connected in our community. So they help to connect new immigrants in with our programming. But yeah, always a work in progress to help us build more relationships across the community. So are you working on this pursuit of joy daily in your own life? Yeah, I I meditated just before we talked today. Oh, nice. Um, I should have. (laughs) I'm not able to do it every day, definitely. But uh, when I find those stretches, I really find that it makes a big difference. We've been kind of a hybrid office place during this time. We deliver a lot of in-person services, but for other staff, we wanted to just minimize the number of people in person to minimize risk of COVID spreading and keep everyone safe. We've been in the office more recently, and I have to say just being with people in person definitely feeds that joy. Funnily, having those interactions on the bus, on the T, just connecting with real live people. Uh, my family brings a lot of joy to me. I try to exercise every day. So 
yeah, yeah, I find these pillars to be really helpful, and I I do kind of evaluate myself, like how am I doing on on focusing on these areas? Yeah, they're. I mean, they seem so simple, and yet, like together, they are incredibly impactful. I, we've had so many guests on the show as we did a series on mental health, talking about how you know, really resiliency is built in the things that you're talking about and that they seem so simple and yet we don't do them every day. And, and you know, potentially if we do, and it sounds like there's data to support this, we each individually can feel more grounded and then communally share that with one another. Thank you. Yeah. And that was my, you know, I've seen books that are like a hundred things you can do to be happier. And that was part of my thought is that we need to distill this into a manageable number of principles because certainly they're not everything is captured in those five things I mentioned, but we don't want to overwhelm people. It, we do want it to feel approachable and manageable and something where people can can do that work. And I think another piece that I'm always thinking about how to bring in is kind of a design perspective. How do we make it kind of like downhill? Like the easy path is the path toward doing the things that increase joy. Right, exactly. So what what sorts of things are you, what kind of fun are you bringing to East Boston this summer? Well, our director of community joy is is currently leading a, a little celebrate spring uh, festival is too strong a board, but uh, she has set up tables at all of our sites with treats that people from across the sites have brought in and a little opportunity for people to share what brings them joy. So we're trying to just infuse that more. She's setting up bulletin boards where people can talk about what matters most for joy for them. We're participating in uh, Easty Waterfront Week, I think. We're really fortunate to have a community where a lot of organizations work closely together to support the community. And uh, you guys have been great partners for our community as well and have gotten to see some of that. There's so many strengths in this in this community. Yeah, there's a lot of fun in the summer that we're glad to be able to be a part of here. And our director of Community Joy, too, has talked about how mindfulness can feel overwhelming to people. but that coloring can be a form of mindfulness that can feel less overwhelming. So she's been working on coloring sheets that people can work on and other ways to approach these pillars. Well, tell me about the next year at the community center and how do people, if they want to be involved or if they want to help support your work, how do, how do they do that? Either, either you know, I know because you made a call out for different people to join you in this, you know, programming of joy, measurement of joy, execution of joy. How do people get involved at the center? Thank you. This is going to be a really exciting year coming up. So for the Every Child Shines work that I mentioned, we're bringing together, we're doing a, a program or a project called Future Search, where we're bringing together eight representatives from eight sectors from our community who are looking at our history of trying to help all kids enter kindergarten, ready to learn, joyful and thriving, and are going to map out our trajectory to get there together. And we're really fortunate to have support where we're going to be able to take what people identify as highest priorities and move that work forward in our community. So it's going to be really fun to be increasing engagement, and we've been growing the team that will be leading that work. For the work to demonstrate what it what it would look like for all kids to have access to high-quality, affordable, early ed and care, and to have equitably paid teachers, which is just so critically important for this field right now. Equitably paid, meaning not $15 an hour. Exactly. Yes. We need to do so much better than what we've done. We look like it looks like we have some opportunities to really move that concept forward. So we're we're excited to be able to do that. And we've got some good evaluation partners. So where will the funding come for that? We're having some early conversations with some foundations. 
And then we were fortunate the state, our representative, Adrian Madro, has been just an outstanding supporter for our community and for us. We've shared this concept with him. He's a leader on Common Start. So he was able to secure uh, a line item for us last year to begin that work from the ARPA funds. Okay. Um, but we do think we need at least a five-year runway to prove it and be building out the sustainability path because we certainly don't want to raise wages and then have to go back. Uh, so we're working with a few funders to kind of to pull that together. And then we've got Brazelton Touchpoints on board as an evaluator, and they've been a great partner and social finance because we want to monetize the impact. And I don't know that it's going to we're going to be able to fully say it pays for itself. That's what they've been cautioning us with. But I certainly think there's a really good return on investment and it's just the right thing to do. And so how many kids would not have been involved who will now have access to early childhood education? I guess it's both sides and how many how many providers actually will be paid equitably during this process. So our early education programs support 161 children. I want to say it's approximately 30 staff who will benefit from those improved wages as a result of that. Unfortunately, this specific project does not involve increasing our licensed capacity, although uh, we're going to continue to explore needs in the community and opportunities to do that. But it does mean that we'll be ensuring that no family is paying more than 7% of their income in order to access these programs. For those receiving subsidy and voucher, the state has actually made some progress on that, which is really exciting. Uh, And so we'll just be filling the gap for those who are not able to access those subsidies and vouchers, but also are spending far too much for early education. It's amazing. I would imagine parents are very excited about this. I think so. Yes. Yeah. And we're uh, honestly, we've still, it's funny, I'm saying it out loud here. We're being a little quiet about it so far because we're still, you know, working on pulling it all together, but we're making good progress. So we're excited. Yeah, it's really wonderful. And so how do you think, how do you, well, how does the state collaborate with you right now? What do you hope that they're paying attention to or what sorts of things do you want to be able to provide to the state to, to show that the, the work that you're doing is the way to help communities thrive? Yeah, it's, you know, it's an exciting time at the state level. It's an exciting time at the federal level because I think it's one of, it's strange to even say silver lining, but kind of one of those silver linings of this pandemic was people saw how broken our early education and care system was, how essential these workers are, and how essential this is for a thriving economy. And I think, I, I think about your future of work, work as well. I think for a state where it is so expensive to live and where workers are going to have more flexibility about where they can live with a potential future of hybrid work, we need to lead on childcare so that we can keep people here. And people can kind of have the future they want to have here and not limit how many kids or, you know, not have children because they can't afford to. So it's an exciting moment. The legislature is has just positively reported out of committee legislation that would be kind of foundational toward the vision that I'm talking about here. They recognize the need. There is a legislative commission and there is some increased funding in this year's budget, but there's there's a lot more work to do. And so... So we think it's really important to prove what the vision that I think many people in the legislature actually espouse. But what is what could this vision look like? And hopefully we can show them the pathway forward. And also the process evaluation is important so we can say, here are the things that we learned about the most effective way to implement this and hopefully help to create a roadmap for the legislature to do that. I think it's great. So if people want to get in touch with you, how do they access you and how to to help or to learn more to be a part of your campaign for joy 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, ebsocialcenters.org. So eb, like East Boston, and then socialcenters with an S, dot org. And they can call me directly to 617-569-3221. And we're really excited to partner and and learn together. We really want to be a, a laboratory of what's possible and, and develop things together that hopefully could have impact far beyond the wonderful neighborhood of East Boston. Great. Justin, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. I'm 100% on board with your pursuit of joy. Thank you. I'm excited to talk more about it. And as I said, uh, there are things that we're going to be experimenting with that I think the answers aren't there yet. So we're excited to learn with you and, and learn from what you've been learning on this journey too. Thank you for listening to our conversation with Justin Pascarello, Executive Director of the East Boston Social Centers. Justin's work creating joy for children and families in East Boston is groundbreaking, and we hope to see more initiatives like his throughout Boston and across Massachusetts. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast, and if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.